Chapter Twelve of the Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Embarrassment of Bower. Next day, the ladies Plone found occasion for one of those dissertations on the shortcomings of servants so dear to the feminine heart. Mr. Hartman told them that he had been obliged to dismiss his young valet without notice because of insubordination and impertinence i lost my patience and told him to get out of my sight at once reported the indignant landowner his soft heart reproaching him all the while for the calumny he was obliged to heap on the head of his faithful carl muller reached his own house in the city exactly at eleven o'clock he was greeted by his former housekeeper whom he had recalled as there was now no further reason for secrecy as far as mrs tunner was concerned the latter seemed so disappointed at the change in the household that the soft-hearted Mueller hastened to reassure her. He told her that his home was hers until she could get another good position, or until Carl was able to make a home for himself and his mother. "'Is he able to do anything for himself yet?' asked the anxious mother timidly. "'It is your kindness alone that gives him the opportunity to be honest, at least.' Mueller shook his head. "'It's not such a great kindness on my part. I need your son, and he is proving himself very useful to me.' You need have no anxiety about him, if you have no objection to his following my profession. He may do well at it, if he makes good in this detective work I am now testing him with. Why should I have any objection to it? There are people who do not think highly of the profession. I am not one of them, replied Mrs. Tunner warmly. How could I be, now that I know you and what sort of a man you are? It isn't the work that makes the man, but the man that makes or mars the profession he adopts. If Carl should become ever so little like you, I will be proud of him, more proud of him than I thought possible, of late years. "'Has he told you that he is going to Russia?' asked Mueller, changing the subject. Mrs. Tunner shook her head. "'That was wise of him,' continued Mueller in a tone of approval. "'In our profession a man must say as little as possible, even to those who are nearest to him. But there is no harm in your knowing where he is going. If he is away longer than now planned, it will be perfectly safe for him to write you if you wish it. It shall be just as you think best, said Mrs. Tunner calmly. Mueller gave her a slip of paper with a few lines written on it. In case Carl is not here at the time, I want you to send this telegram to me as soon as you receive one, which I will send you. My message will be a perfectly indifferent one. Let us say something about buying flowers for me. As soon as it comes, get this off at once. And now I want to talk to Carl. Has he come home yet? Yes, he came in half an hour ago. Now I understand why he had all that shopping to do. He had to get ready for his trip. Please have dinner served at half-past twelve, and order the carriage for one o'clock. Mueller nodded to Mrs. Tunner and went upstairs to the little room he had assigned to Carl. The door was half open, and the young man sat by the window reading. He was so absorbed in his book that he did not hear Mueller's entrance, nor the closing of the door. The detective smiled as if pleased at his protégé's power of concentration, and spoke gently. "'George Munzer,' was all he said. Carl started and sprang up from his chair. "'Oh, Mr. Mueller, I didn't hear you come in.' "'Well, I'm glad to see you know your new name when you hear it,' replied Mueller, with a glance at the book in Carl's hands. "'That's right. You know how to go about it, I see,' he continued, for the book was the familiar red-covered Baedecker, with the word Russia in gold letters on the cover." Inside the book, however, covering the open pages, was a sheet of white paper on which was written many dozen times the name George Munzer. 
Carl stood blushing in embarrassment, still holding his lead pencil. "'Wasn't it foolish of me?' he asked. "'Not at all. It was a very good exercise for you, and the best thing you could have done. The most important thing for you the first few days will be to make no slip as to your name, and you can't be too familiar with it. Now sit down, and I will give you your instructions.' The two men sat in earnest consultation until dinner-time, Mueller talking and Carl listening carefully, answering only now and then to show that he understood. As they went down to the dining-room, Carl's cheeks were flushed and his eyes shone with pleasurable excitement. The meal passed quietly, and at one o'clock they entered the carriage and drove to Greng's agency. The manager of the establishment was already waiting for them in his inner office, as Mueller had announced their coming by messenger. Greng studied the young stranger carefully and could find no fault in his outer appearance, at least. This tall, clean-shaven, good-looking young man, with his slender, graceful figure and his well-cut, simple dark suit, looked more like a young Englishman of leisure than anything else, and Greng was greatly pleased with Mueller's protégé. The modest and unassuming but thoroughly well-poised manners of the young man pleased him also. George Munzer said little during the interview, and Mueller, who was present, remained strictly impartial. Greng was anxious to have Munzer go see Maximoff at once, but the new young detective refused to do so. It was finally arranged that the introduction to Greng's wealthy client should take place on the following day, at an hour determined by Munzer. Mr. Hartman spent the rest of the afternoon after his return to Inzersdorf in the society of the Plone family. He strolled over to the house just as the twilight had fallen, and found his hosts in the cosy sitting-room. Maximoff was there also, seated at the piano, accompanying Suzanne's singing. The Russian was an excellent pianist, and a particularly skillful accompanist. With delicate understanding of every shading of the mood of the song, his playing melted into the voice, lifting it into clearer prominence, giving it a background of gentle-hued harmonies. He was playing without notes, improvising from time to time, letting his soul speak in the soft flow of harmony his fingers awoke from the ivory keys. His great dark eyes, with their glance of gentle melancholy, that hung like a veil of mystery over the velvet-soft depths, were raised in tender affection to the sweet, calm face of the girl who stood beside him. Her eyes answered his, as she looked down at him. She, too, had no notes, singing free from memory. She sang for him alone, the quiet little group that sat beyond the radius of light thrown by the tall lamp near the piano had been forgotten by the man and woman whose souls met in the consciousness of one another's nearness, in the harmonies that floated around them like a clinging screen, shutting them in a delicious solitude. Suzanne's slender figure in her pale-colored gown swayed gently as she sang. The lamp gleamed on her fair hair and delicate skin, surrounding her head like an aureole, the simple Scotch ballad that she sang seemed to her an expression of her own happiness as she looked down at this handsome, gifted man, this man with the great heart and the wonderful brain, who had yet chosen her for his beloved, although she was but a simple country girl. The glow of her feeling illumined her rapt face as she sang the simple tale of the prince who plucked a floweret from the hedgerow to wear next to his heart, beating with his heartbeats, happy in his love but though the floweret was happy but for a brief hour to wither then and die happier still was she than if left on her bush to blossom free in wind and sunshine better a moment's brief joy than a life of loveless security the gentle reproachful sadness of the old ballad melted away in the happiness 
that shone in Suzanne's eyes and curved her pure lips. When her eyes met those of her beloved, there was no room in her soul for aught but the joy of being his. Mueller sat back in the shade, watching the couple at the piano. His busy brain twisted and turned a thousand possibilities in the crucible of his highly trained intelligence, sharpened to keenness by rich experience. All the while an undercurrent of suppressed emotion welled up from his heart, keeping up a running commentary of doubt to all the suggestions offered by the brain. It can't be true. It simply can't be true, he thought. I'm off on a false trail again, and it's not for the first time, either. There'll be some reasonable explanation as to the Napoleon portrait. I know there will. If there is any secret in this man's life, it has something to do with politics, I know. Again he lost himself in the study of Maximov's features. The Russian's handsome face, with its clear colorless skin, framed in curly dark hair, wore an expression of calm content. It was a content back of which the warm blood and vitality of the man were beating. There was nothing ox-like in the easy repose of the face. But it was the face of a man who was at peace with himself and the world, for this hour at least. His hands, too, drew Mueller's eyes to them, slender white hands, which yet, even in their easy movement over the ivory keys, showed complete muscular control and great strength. They seemed to suit the man's fine figure with the broad shoulders and slender hips, and to complete the picture of virile manhood at its very finest, in the prime of early maturity. The veteran detective, with his deep knowledge of the world and the human heart, wondered that there was not more passion in the grave happiness in Suzanne's eyes. It must be, he thought, that there is no place for sensual passion in her clear soul, or surely this man would be capable of awakening it. A slight movement beside him made him turn, and he saw that Bauer had slipped in and taken the chair to his left. With his mind still full of the charm and strength of the Russian, Mueller noticed as never before the utter lack of attraction in this other man. Here, too, were height and evident strength in a human frame, but where in the one case all was grace and easy elasticity, in the other the strength took the shape of an awkward bulk. Maximoff had never been more fascinating, more brilliant, than he was this evening. In the radiance which seemed to go out from him, the ugliness of the unfortunate bookkeeper was thrown into greater prominence. Bauer sat hunched together on his chair, evidently not listening to the music, but absorbed in his own thoughts. They were not pleasant thoughts, for his hands twitched nervously. He bit at his lips and swallowed hard every now and then. The detective looked at him more carefully. He knew that this man had been acquainted with Erlock and had been inside the greenhouse more than once. Mrs. Tunner had told Mueller that during the two years of her service there, Bauer visited her employer about ten or a dozen times. Like all the others who spoke about the bookkeeper, she was willing to acknowledge that the man seemed to be a faithful worker, a capable businessman, reserved and unobtrusive. But, there was always a but when people spoke of Bauer, they seemed to distrust some secret behind his quiet. No one had confidence in him, nor liking for him. The men's servants complained of his exacting haughtiness. The women were afraid of him, as he evinced a desire to become aggressive in his attentions whenever he was sure that he would not be found out. The ladies of the Plone family, even the manager's wife, who was anxious always to be just to everyone, made no pretense of liking Bauer. Mrs. Plone was always the cordial hostess to her husband's employees, but Mueller saw that it took an effort sometimes for her to overlook Bauer's unpleasant manners. 
Suzanne was more outspoken and frankly said that it was not so much the man's lack of good looks that bothered her, but the fact that, as she expressed it, there's a certain type of ugliness that comes only from inward vulgarity. Mueller remembered all these things now, for he knew that it was worthwhile giving a certain amount of attention to the intuition of cultivated, fine-minded women. He had been watching the bookkeeper lately and had won the man's confidence sufficiently to draw out an invitation to visit him in his room. Here he gained still more the impression of the man's pettiness and meanness, vulgarity, as Suzanne called it. But he realized also that behind this vulgarity there was not enough bigness of heart or soul to make possible the commission of such crimes as had been perpetrated by the unknown with the black cord. By this time Mueller had become convinced that Bauer was not this unknown, although he was not quite sure that the bookkeeper might not in some way have been connected with the occurrences in the greenhouse. For there was something on this man's mind, Mueller saw that, and a little incident that occurred on this very evening increased his suspicion and reawoke his interest in the bookkeeper. During the singing, Mr. Plone, who had been in one of the other rooms, came to the door and beckoned his wife to him. The couple passed through the next room, into the drawing-room, and a subdued sound of voices was heard from there. Mueller recognized a strange voice, a man's. They spoke softly, too softly at least to hear at that distance, and through the music, the words that were said. With a curiosity which was one of his unpleasant qualities, Bauer leaned forward as if anxious to see who the stranger was. Suddenly he turned pale, bit his lips nervously, and arose from his chair. He took a step or two towards the door between the rooms, then turned in the direction of the hall door. Here he halted for a moment and came up to Mueller. "'Mr. Hartman, would you please make my excuses?' he said hastily. "'I have a very bad headache and think I'd better not wait for supper.' "'Certainly. I'll tell Mr. and Mrs. Plone you're not feeling well,' Mueller replied, taking the hand the other held out to him. Bower's hand was cold and moist and trembled perceptibly. "'You certainly do look wretched,' continued Mueller. "'Why, you are trembling all over.' "'I I don't feel well. I had better go to my room,' murmured Bower. The man was quite upset, and Mueller followed him closely with his eye. The bookkeeper reached the door in a few long strides and closed it gently behind him. Scarcely was the door fully shut before Mueller stood beside it. The two at the piano were so absorbed in their music and in one another that they paid no attention to what was going on behind them and even if they had, there would have been nothing particularly noticeable in the fact that Bauer left the room because he was not feeling well, and that Hartman should have followed him in case he needed help. But the latter did not leave the room at once. He stood at the door for some few minutes, then turned the knob very softly. He opened the door quickly and looked out into the hall. He saw what he was expecting to see. Ferdinand Bauer stood close to the drawing-room door, listening at the crack. When Mueller opened the door of the music room, the sound of the singing came out into the hall so much louder that Bauer started and looked around. Mueller closed the door, shutting off the sound, and walked down the hall. Bauer stood waiting for him with an evil gleam in his eye. I, I, I was dizzy, he said sharply. Is there anything I can do for you? Can I assist you to your room? asked Mr. Hartman with a tone of friendly sympathy. Just think how embarrassing if this door should suddenly open while you were leaning against it. You wouldn't want to tumble into the drawing-room like that. These doors open to the outside, remarked the other in the same sharp tone. Then he turned without another word and walked on towards the covered passageway, which led from the main house 
to the office building. "'Miss Suzanne is right,' thought Mueller. "'It is inner vulgarity that makes this man so unpleasant, and has given him this particular type of ugliness. Yes, a man of that kind might easily be led into committing a crime. But this man seems to me to be too petty for the series of crimes that I am following up here. Or, I have been mistaken before in my life, may he not be deeper than I think? They call me infallible, but the world doesn't realize how many mistakes I have made, how many failures I have to my record. They see only my victories. I must be careful here, and not go ahead too fast. If this man has not the brain to have planned these crimes, might he not have been the instrument used by another? The only thing here is that there was no robbery committed in the most of these cases, and I do not think that this man would become a criminal without some pecuniary advantage to himself. Or is this only another mistake of mine? Can a soul like his hate enough to murder, or murder for the joy of it? I saw him kick an unoffending dog one day, and yet he is a coward, as was shown by his action just now. Whoever it is inside there frightened him so that he fairly ran away, for the strides he took could almost be called running. Here Mueller's thoughts came to a standstill again, and went off in another direction. Again he saw himself in the Erlock house in the dead of night, and saw the tall figure running away with long strides that carried it into the darkness with astonishing rapidity. He must find out what it was, who it was, that had so frightened Bower just now. He returned to the music-room just as Suzanne was gathering up the loose sheets that lay on the piano. Maximoff whirled round on the piano-stool and said, laughingly, "'Our music has driven you all away, hasn't it? You at least have had the courage to come back.' Hartman laughed in answer to the joke, but his mind was on the drawing-room behind him. He walked casually through the music-room to where he could see the door. But this did him no good, for the only person within his range of vision now was Plone himself, who stood leaning against a table, smoking. He could catch a glimpse of Mrs. Plone's light dress, but that was all. He had just made up his mind to go into the drawing-room, even without being asked, when he heard Suzanne say, "'We seem to have a caller.' At the same moment there was a sound of chairs being shoved back in the drawing-room, and Mrs. Plone came forward through the intervening apartment. At her side was a cheery-faced, very young lieutenant, in the uniform of an infantry regiment. Suzanne gave an exclamation of pleasure and walked forward to meet the stranger. "'Why, if it isn't Cousin Fritz!' she exclaimed brightly. "'And how nice we look in our new uniform! I suppose you've been up to some mischief and have been sent to Vienna to be punished, eh?' The young man drew himself up for a formal salute as he answered with mock gravity. "'Quite right, fair cousin. I've been in Vienna since the twentieth of the month, sentenced to attend the coming carnival.' "'Thinking of pleasure, as usual,' continued Suzanne, with a merry laugh. "'But you haven't met my betrothed yet. Sergius, permit me to present you my cousin, this extremely undignified lieutenant of Imperial Infantry, Fritz von Seelern. Lieutenant von Seelern, Dr. Maximoff.' The gentleman shook hands, and then Mrs. Plone introduced the young officer to Hartman. The manager asked where Bauer was, and Hartman gave the latter's excuses for his absence. A few moments later, supper was announced. Mr. Hartman Mueller could not imagine what it was in the appearance of the harmless young warrior that had so upset Bauer. Apparently absorbed in the enjoyment of his supper, the detective listened to the conversation carefully and learned that Fritz von Seilern had not been in Inzersdorf for three years. Therefore he could not have met Bauer in this place, at least. But might they not have met somewhere else? Some connection there must be between the two men, for Bauer was no fool, he would not have run away for nothing in such excitement. 
Mueller spoke of Bauer two or three times, mentioning his first name, as it was much more unusual than the surname. But the young lieutenant did not seem to have the faintest interest in this absent Ferdinand Bauer. Mueller was puzzled. Suddenly the conversation took a turn that interested him greatly. "'What's this I hear about a crime that was committed in this neighborhood recently?' asked the visitor unexpectedly, in the midst of another topic. "'I heard some men talking about it in the train. They seemed to think that the police were showing their usual stupidity in not discovering anything yet. Something about an old man, wasn't it? Was it a murder?' Mueller volunteered no information, but while the others were talking he watched Maximoff with the greatest interest. Suzanne was the first to speak. "'It was old Mr. Erlock who lived alone in the greenhouse,' she said. "'He was mysteriously missing one morning, and they have not yet found him, either dead or alive.' "'Erlock? Erlock?' repeated the young lieutenant. "'I wonder if that's any relation to my comrade, Paul Erlock. "'It's his regiment I've changed to. It seems to me I heard that he has relatives hereabouts.' "'Lieutenant Paul Erlock was the nephew of the missing man,' answered Plone, "'and is his sole heir if the death is proven. "'Is there much money there?' "'Yes, quite some, I believe.' "'Well, I hope Erlock will get it,' said Lieutenant Fritz. "'He's a nice chap. We all like him. "'It's hell to be poor in the army, you know.' Plone and the ladies continued to give their new guest the details of the affair, and Mr. Hartman threw in an observation occasionally, stray questions which, although the others did not notice it, were calculated to keep the conversation to this one topic. All the while the detective was watching Maximoff, who sat opposite him but the man on whom Mueller's keen gray eyes were so closely fixed was the most harmless seeming of the entire company. He ate his supper slowly with the delicate enjoyment of a connoisseur in well-prepared food. He was constantly on the watch for some courtesy to the ladies of the family, he threw in a remark about the excellent wine, and then bent his entire attention towards putting together a new combination of fruits for Suzanne. Everything about the man seemed to point to a perfect calm, and a peaceful enjoyment of the moment. There was not a single glance of the eye, not the faintest fleeting shade of expression in his face, to show that the subject of the conversation had any interest for him whatever. "'Hasn't it occurred to anyone yet that the disappearance of the old gentleman and the other mysterious crimes which have been committed in this neighborhood might all have been carried out by the same person?' remarked Mueller, when he thought the interest in the subject was flagging. Mrs. Plone looked up surprised. "'Why, no, I hadn't thought of it,' she said. Suzanne shook her head. "'If it were so, they would have found the black cord in the Erlock house.' "'Yes, exactly,' said her brother. "'We spoke of that possibility once before, you remember.' Maximoff was occupied in peeling a pear. Under his strong, supple fingers, the little knife moved slowly and delicately. "'You know, you really ought never to peel a pear,' he said to Suzanne, "'because the very sweetest part of it lies directly under the skin.' At this point he stopped and looked right at Hartman, continuing eagerly. "'That's an idea that ought to be followed up. It occurred to me once before, and I forgot to mention it.' He returned to Suzanne again. "'Who knows whether the great unknown has not left his usual reminder behind him in the greenhouse? Our local authorities have discovered so little in this matter that one carelessness more or less would not be surprising. They may have simply overlooked the uncanny visiting card, as Mr. Hartman calls it, Maximoff returned to his pear, cut it carefully in pieces, and ate it slowly. He seemed to be pondering over something, and did not take part in the conversation for some few minutes. Fritz was interested in hearing about the other crimes, and they told him the principal details. He, too, was lost in admiration of the reckless courage and the uncanny cleverness of the man with the black cord. 
When Maximov had finished eating his pear, he wiped his beard carefully, then remarked, in a pause in the talk, "'Your idea has taken complete possession of me, Mr. Hartman. I think I'll have a chat with our Constable Kern tomorrow and start him on another investigation of the Erlock house. The detective whose coming was announced to us some time ago seems either not to have come at all, or like the other brilliant police minds, not to have discovered anything worthy of notice. Possibly, replied Hartman, returning the other's smile frankly. Mueller had noticed something in Maximoff's speech, the little pause which he put in after the word seems. To the others it meant nothing, but to Mueller it seemed like a sudden change of idea due to caution. Might not a man have said that in just that way, who knew perfectly well that the detective of whom he spoke had been in the greenhouse? And who else could have known of the detective's presence there except the masked man who had taken flight so hastily that night? But this masked man knew also that the guest in the pavilion was the expected detective. The trace of the footprints right up to his garden gate showed Hartman that he had been recognized. If this man had indeed been Maximoff, who now sat smiling so cordially at Mr. Hartman, then he must believe that he could play with this Mr. Hartman as a cat plays with a mouse. His eyes shone brightly, his well-cut mouth curved in cheery lines, as he continued, I would not be at all surprised if the black cord could be found somewhere in that house. We all know how short-sighted the eye of the law is. Was it mere chance that the man's great dark eyes rested on Hartman at the moment? Or is he only looking at me so fixedly because it is my thought that he is carrying out at length? asked Mueller of himself. He was conscious of a growing inner excitement, of animation, particularly now that he knew that Maximoff had engaged a detective for some secret work. His talk of a journey to Russia might have been merely a blind to throw Grang off the track, for it was quite possible that this new detective was to be set to spy upon Mr. Hartman. But all this could only be true if it were also true that Sergius Maximoff was one of the greatest criminals of his day, and this was a thought that Mueller could not yet take seriously. All his years of experience had taught the veteran detective that criminals are to be found in every class and in every period of life, had taught him that the most attractive outward appearance may often be a cover for the deepest inner depravity. With his brain, his keen working brain, Joseph Mueller believed in no one, trusted no one. But with his heart, he was always believing and trusting. He knew that in the mental makeup of every criminal there is some insecure point, some crack, as it were, through which one can at times look into the carefully hidden horrors concealed there. But Maximoff, this highly intelligent, good-hearted man, whose life was so full of work and study and philanthropy, so rich in harmless enjoyment of the beauty of nature, in his love for his art treasures, how could this man bury such horrors in his soul? There are things which are possible, if not probable, but there are other things which are not even possible. While Joseph Mueller, the experienced detective, was revolving all these thoughts in his brain, Mr. Robert Hartman, Polish landowner, was smiling at Dr. Maximoff and repeating his own word. Possibly. He said it once more, and this time it sounded like a question. Soon after this, Mr. Hartman rose and made his farewells for the evening. Back in his own room, he took out his notebook and on its last page wrote the one word, collar. End of chapter 12